As of the recording of this video, the United Kingdom is still in the European Union. And a little while after, the United Kingdom will be leaving the European Union. But will it really be? I want to know your opinion as someone who is not an EU citizen like myself. Do you think the UK, you know, as of tomorrow, is actually outside the European Union or not? Because it's a big grey area, right? I think it's always going to be that little thing where it has a bunch of blue stripes covering it. Because it's in the European Union, but not at the same time. And you think it will always be in the European Union, but not? Or you think it always has been in the European Union, but not? Was the UK ever really in the European Union? This is like the biggest conspiracy video like topic. Like, you know, legally speaking, everyone just assumed the UK was in. But were we really? Have you ever seen the UK admit it was in the EU? I think not. You know, you actually, for the most part, like, outside of, like, maybe, like, some rural parts of Wales and, like, some of the, like, EU development projects, you very rarely see the EU flag here, which is the opposite to every other EU member state I've been to. Well, that probably explains why you left. <laughs> Do you think the flags would have kept us in? If there were more flags in, like, London and, the and like, you know, the Birmingham's and the cities that voted for leave in the north, I want to clarify London didn't. But like, do you think if there were more flags in those places, more people would have been swayed towards staying? I also think if the flag was better, people might have wanted to stay. Like it's very blue, like very deep blue. And the yellow stars, it, it just, in a circle, it kind of looks like a corporate logo. Yeah, I, I, I have that feel too. Like it's very much a corporate logo. But I mean, the EU is the most corporate entity that is vaguely a country. Like it's very much not a country in the ways that we used to care about, but in all the corporate ways, right? That it does describe it. <laughs> the EU might as well be a corporate entity. I like that. That's a good summary. A corporation is an association of individuals where individual profits without individual responsibility. That's a quote from Civ4. Really? Oh, I, I was going to say that whole thing was sound like, I didn't agree with any of that, but now it's Civ4. I'm like, yeah, good opinions. Yeah, I agree with that. The newer civilization games should totally have like a... Um, a mechanic where you can build together like a an EU or like an African Union or a South American Union. Like you should be able to build like that. One of the victories should be combining the world like that. Not like UN style, but like that. There should be alliances that are like sort of like the EU or whatever. Or the Holy Roman Empire. Or the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> Again, I, I've said this before, and I get a lot of flack for it because the video has been going uh, quite big recently. But the Holy Roman Empire was just the EU before the EU. Like the I guess. The, the concepts of the Germanies is a lot like the concept of the EU right now. Like all these very different but very similar things agreeing or like coming together despite feeling so different. And after the UK leaves the European Union, if it does, it will be like the continental system during the Napoleonic Wars where the UK will be locked out from the continent and will have to try and trade with the rest of the world instead. Do you think... So I always assumed from day one when the UK left, it was the only correct interest of the EU was to make it go badly for the UK. I assumed that that had to be like an assumed starting point. But I don't believe, based on everything I've been following for the past four years, that that's actually their intent right now. I don't believe it. Strategically, they should, because if the UK can thrive outside of the European Union, then it could suggest to others that they could leave. However, it could be simply that the UK, being its island self, thinks that it can attempt to be a maritime nation, and the continent thinks that its interests lie more in cooperation of other continental countries, 
and both sides can think of it as a mutually beneficial disengagement. I genuinely think that's what it's thought of as, because if the UK does well, it looks like, uh, you know, after leaving the EU, oh, now and every country that wants to leave has a big point in their, you know, feather in their cap. But the UK was already doing better than the EU average while we were inside of it and not integrating at the same speed as everyone else, you know, like despite not having the Euro, you know, despite not being in Schengen, like a lot of the key benefits of the EU we didn't sign up to, but we did better than the countries that did. So it's kind of arguable that's just that trend continuing. That could be the case. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have anything to say about that. Oh, that's okay. I wanted to talk about the continental system. Sorry, I, you know, I, but then, did you want to know? I, I was, I meant to look it up as soon as you said it. I was like, I know the continental system. Then I was like, I think I'm thinking of the, the end of Napoleon, not the start of Napoleon, but you're not. The continental system was after Napoleon kind of took over Europe somehow. All of the continental powers, except for Portugal. Good guy, Portugal. Good guy, Portugal. Oldest ally, just saying. Yeah, Portugal was, was, is your best ally ever. I think the oldest military alliance of any two countries in the world. Anyway, then Russia wanted to get out of it. So that's why N Napoleon invaded Russia. So Russia actually has a very long history of trade with the United Kingdom. Portugal went around Africa. Spain went around South America. And so what England tried to do was they tried to go around Russia. Because they were like, obviously, there's four corners of the world. <laughs> you can go around all the four corners. So this is the Northeast Passage and the Northwest Passage. So you, England was trying to find that, but they just found snow. But what they did find was they found Russia. So then they started trade with Russia, but going around Scandinavia. So England had extensive trade relations with Russia for a long history. And so Russia was not very keen on the continental system. So they left and then Napoleon invaded. And then he repeated the mistakes of the Swedish empire, which invaded in the coldest winter ever and went for a third round with Operation Barbarossa. See, if you were going to invade Russia though, when would you do it, Mr. Almighty military historic? You know, what can you do that great German, Swedish and French leaders have not thought of? The Polish invaded Russia successfully, but here's the thing. They invaded Russia before it was called Russia. Aw, oh, cheating. It was called Muscovites back then. So it was before Russia had formed itself as a large block. There was no ability for it to have the defense in depth where it could just retreat endlessly. It didn't have the large Siberian territories. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the Mongols invaded. It was that was before they had formed like Russia. It was still just the Rus and the Novgorod and that sort of things. The Muscovites came after the Mongols invaded and then they formed Russia after the Mongols invaded. So the way to invade Russia successfully is invade before there is Russia. We're like five tangents off in the first like eight minutes. <laughs> I'm like so lost. <laughs> like how do we get here? <laughs> You're the tangent king in terms of like how far off you can get on a in a single answer. You can be like, well, you know, I think Scotland is gonna leave the UK, but also let me tell you about the Qing dynasty. Europe is a fractal. Oh my god, no, don't do it. Because no, it's... no, no. <laughs> don't do this to me. Yes, we have to talk about the fractal nature of Europe. Oh, God. Europe is a peninsula with a bunch of peninsulas sticking out of it. And those peninsulas have peninsulas. So, Europe is a fractal. That is true. And so a fractal is when you take an object and it's similar no matter how much you zoom in on it. So if you take a triangle and then you take stick some triangles sticking out of that triangle and it's more st triangles sticking out of those smaller triangles and do that infinitely, you get a fractal the snowflake thing. All coastlines are kind of like fractals. If you look at China's coastline, for instance, if you zoom out a lot, it looks kind of like a little round semicircle on the south. Uh -huh. But what Europe looks like is it still looks the same even if you zoom out all the way. 
when you zoom in on China's coastline, it starts to look like a coastline. But Europe still looks like a coastline even when you're zoomed out all the way. So Europe is the most perfect fractal. I actually, you know, at first I thought you'd just done some drugs and you were relating it to geography. Like you've been like, man, you realize how Europe is kind of like you can zoom in and it's always the same. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm checking this right now. It's actually true. Yeah, like Europe has that distinctive weird jutty out shape everywhere, even at the most zoomed out setting you can get. And then you zoom in and it just, it keeps on going and it keeps on going. With a few exceptions, I will say, that I found just while doing this, like Spain is pretty flat when you zoom in. Russia is not a fractal. It's part of the entrance to the fractal thing. So that's how it's related to Russia. I feel like Norway is the most intense version of this though. The more you zoom into Norway, the more confused you get and the more you question how it ever became a country. It's like, there's so much water in, the, like, in places where there shouldn't be water. How, Actually, what's interesting is if you turn a coastline into a fractal mathematically, you can calculate how weird a coastline is. <laughs> the coastline can never be measured exactly. I do know that one. The coastline paradox. Everyone knows it. Everyone's had that video and they're recommended. I spoke to my girlfriend about this and she was like, yep, I've seen that video. And I was like, whoa, okay, everyone knows. The closer you get, the more longer it will become because you can measure more. Yeah. But what you can do is you can mathematically represent the coastline as a fractal, and then it's possible to get an exact measurement. However, it's not a length and it's not an area. It's raised to the power between one and two. So it will be in meters to the 1.43, for example. You see Europe having so much coastline is related to why the UK wants to leave it. I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. <laughs> that actually is the case. Do you actually think so? Sorry, justify that somehow. I don't see how that makes any sense. <laughs> that number that the, the meters get raised to, the closer to two it is, the more crazy the coastline is. So Europe's coastline is crazier than most places as in it's raised to the higher power than other areas. Norway is the highest, but England has a very high one as well. What that means though is the more coastline you have, the more areas there are for people to live next to the coastline, mm -hmm. which means the more people will be dependent on outside trade over interior trade. Because if you have a long coastline, the people on the coastline are going to be engaging in maritime activities more. So like if you have a village by the sea, you'll have people you can recruit for sailing from there. Yeah, the pretty much. Whereas if you have people who are in, in the interior, they are not recruitable for sailing purposes. This is something that like always shocks people who aren't familiar with the UK, but like the pretty much furthest point you can get from any amount of like sea or like, you know, ocean, I guess, because the sea's connected to the ocean in the UK is like 100 kilometers, like everywhere. And even then, most places aren't in those areas. Most with the exception of like a Birmingham uh, and the Midland cities. All the big areas of the UK traditionally and even to this day are on the coastline. We have so many coastal cities and that's because we just have a ridiculous amount of land to do so. Like being an island shaped like we are, just it, it lends itself well to having an infinite number of port cities basically or sea cities uh, like you. What, what word did you use? It was fancier. Maritime cities? Maritime areas? Yeah, maritime cities. Yeah, uh, it, it blows my mind whenever we learn in like history that like, oh yeah, there are some empires that were so big, they just had like caravan routes going through them. Like it seems, it seems absurd to imagine like a bunch of camels actually being the main source of trade. But I guess if you're not an island, or you're not in Northern Europe, or even any part of Europe really, that was just a fact. Do you think that's what led to? Oh, yeah. And then this brings back to Russia where they spend so much time trying to conquer to find sea. And then the first time they do it, it's the White Sea, 
and it's in it's frozen like half the year. The second time they do it, it's St. Petersburg and it's frozen for a quarter of the year and <laughs> um, it's blocked by the Danish Straits. And then the next time they do it, it's Crimea and it's on the Black Sea and it's blocked by the Turkish Straits, even though it's warm. So it's warm this time, so it's good. And then they march all the way around to the other side of Asia <laughs> just to get a port. Yeah, literally <laughs> more than all the rest. Like, because they just kind of kept on going, like trying to get the military thing. Uh, a thing that like always blows me away is like, if you look at Russia, it's like, yeah, it's the biggest country in the world. If you look at just European Russia, it would be one of the biggest countries in the world already. But then they just keep going and going and going and going and going and going until they literally hit the other side of the world. Like Russia's a, a big old country. Yeah. And they didn't even stop because they crossed over the Bering Strait to go into Alaska. Oh, yeah. And they named <laughs> the city in Alaska New Archangelsk which Archangelsk is the city that is on the White Sea that the British, when they found it, they started the trade of Russia. So Archangelsk is in the north. They decided to call their, their cold city in Alaska New Archangelsk. A fun fact that I've checked just now is in fact true. Russia went so far to the east, you know, to make Alaska, you know, Russian America, that Juneau, Alaska is closer to Moscow via the west than it is going east. That is, that is quite yep. a fact. Jesus. But to go geopolitical with you, do you think Russia would ever join the EU? Like in one, in a fancy future land, can you imagine that happening? Or are you of the opinion that they never would, that the EU is built to oppose Russia and it wouldn't work? What's interesting is the Soviet Union requested to join NATO. Is that true? I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to confirm, dear viewers, if that is true, because I that don't That is believe. true. The Soviet Union requested to, to join NATO. So there's a quote about the strategic aims of NATO, and it was to keep the Americans in, to keep the Germans down and to keep the Russians out. So the EU is kind of like an extension of NATO in that it's an economic block that keeps NATO as a military block united by uh, giving them financial incentives. Despite the fact continue that supporting despite NATO. the fact that the US and Canada are outside of the EU and the US doesn't even have a trade deal with the EU. Like the term the West can be described by three organizations. One of them is NATO, obviously, mm -hmm. and that's the most salient. The second one is the EU. So countries that are not part of NATO, or, but are part of the EU, can also be considered part of the West. And then including countries that are marginally attached to the EU, like Switzerland, which is part of Schengen, uh -huh. and Norway, which is part of the economic area, mm -hmm. etc. And Iceland is also part of the economic area, I think. Uh -huh. And then the third one is the five eyes, which is the intelligence agreement between the UK, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So the English language speaking countries. Oh, five eyes, like like the things in your face, not the the letter. Yeah, five eyes. Yeah, that's uh, that five eyes to me is the most logical combination of countries. But I don't. I think the only things we've done for each other, besides the intelligence sharing, is we spy on each other's citizens, so we don't have to break the laws of our own countries, right? Yeah, that is pretty much what it does. <laughs> but it's an organization that does let you describe three overlapping things that describe what is generally considered the West. It would be kind of difficult to get Australia and New Zealand into there without without it. I mean, isn't Kanzuk a pretty fair? Way to, I mean, Kanzuk plus America, Americanzuk, unite the U.S. Kanzuk. But it's not, it's not like an official thing, so it makes it difficult. But it's just, it's an easy way of describing NATO plus EU plus Five Eyes as what the West is. Oh, you're saying add them all together, right? My, my bad. I get you. Yeah, and so what's interesting is the one country that is part of all three of those things is the UK. Yes, the UK. <laughs> 
photo is a trick question. The UK is the linchpin of the things that define the West. I would honestly assume that is basically true, right? Because it the one yeah the one thing that is in common with those three groups, the one thing, you know, they they even link those things to each other, I'd say, like, is gonna be the UK. Like, the UK has the closest relationships with the rest of the West. Like, you know, Australia has a closer relationship with the UK than Europe. Europe has a closer relationship with the UK than Australia. Same with the US and any of these places. There are very few, if you take the entire West, I feel like almost all of them, with very few exceptions, will have a better relationship with the UK than with each other. Like, maybe America and Canada maybe Australia and America, maybe Australia and New Zealand together, maybe like France and a Germany. You get a few cases. So if you t- if you were to take every single relationship and stack them by like how well they were viewed, I feel like the UK and their relationship would be viewed as much better than almost any other entity of each other, right? That is it. That's also the guiding principle. The Commonwealth, even though it doesn't do too much these days, it was at one point planned to be, and you know, if it weren't for the EU, probably would have been. But the Commonwealth is also interesting that the UK was set up in that same way. There were almost 50 countries that all had, you know, the, the, the organization of the Commonwealth is interesting because it's not a bunch of countries that have a shared link with each other. It's a bunch of countries that have a shared link with one of the countries in there, the United Kingdom. And I wonder if that's a power play on the UK or if that's extreme coincidence or if that's our trading history behind us. But it's, I think it's the reason the UK has so much soft power in the world. The reason we're such a entity that, you know, it, it, the UK doesn't matter economically really. Like it's the fifth or sixth largest country. It's, it's big, it's something. It doesn't matter too much militarily. It's the, you know, again, in the top 10 somewhere. But I think it's our relationship with everywhere in the world that gives us some form of, you know, recognition with places. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that is the case. And well, the Commonwealth was basically created as the twilight organization of the British Empire, as the British Empire was going to disband, but you needed to, something for it to disband into. So yeah. made the Commonwealth. In the same way, the USSR fell apart into the Commonwealth of Independent States. The British Empire turned into the Commonwealth of I don't know what the full name of it is. I think it's. I think it says something about nations there. Commonwealth of Nations, I think it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the. I. Th- I feel like that's the reason behind. If there is a country that can leave the EU uh, successfully, it probably would be the UK. I don't know if it can be done. I don't know if there is some going to be some spite behind the scenes and if it's going to lead to a loss within the, the Europe that can't be made up elsewhere. But I feel like if any country can simultaneously be friends with a lot of people in a way that leads to good relationships, it would be the UK. Because I feel like we also have the best relationship with China off the off the European bunch and stuff like that, right? Are you sure about that? <laughs> Who do you think of the European <laughs> bunch know. as the best? Yeah, no, I, I, that's mostly just a result of Hong Kong intermediary. Uh, but isn't that, I mean, uh, I, I'm not saying it's a good reason. Like we, we took a lot of other lands in China too. But the fact that we have any relationship and especially one that actually works is something. I mean, I think it's mostly just that you have Hong Kong as an intermediary, which enables Hong Kong to be your relationship with the China. But anyway, I have to continue the pattern of making a random tangent to Russia. Uh, <laughs> Russia has its own Eurasian Union. Oh, yeah, Eurasian Economic Union. Yeah, I am familiar. Yes, that Eurasian Union is kind of small because it only has Belarus, Russia, Kazakhstan, and Armenia. So it, it didn't really succeed in being the Commonwealth Independent States successor that it was supposed to be. Yeah, because I, I think what it is, is countries are infinitely dividing. You know, we've gone from, there have been over 100 new countries in the past century alone. 
And that is, uh, you know, it's really great in certain ways. Like it's great for the sovereignty of the individuals or whatever you want to say. But the trade benefits of having such fractured empires is going to be clear when they have different rules. So I think making these blocks, whether it be, uh, like you say, the Eurasian Unifo- uh, Union or the South, uh, a- South American Union, or even like uh, ASEAN, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, I think these trading blocks make sense as like, country 2.0 or country 3.0 maybe even you know like take the benefits of being a big country but don't be a big country yeah, these organizations are kind of like confederations yeah that's a that's a good way to put them a federation is when there is states and the federal government which share sovereignty a confederation is when the sovereignty derives from the country's governments but through treaties with each other they give certain powers to an extra national body And so that's kind of what the EU is. But the EU is moving towards becoming more like a federation. Like, for instance, there's a lot of conspiracies around the EU. And one of the conspiracies was the creation of an EU army, which was very big in the Brexit peoples before Brexit, as I think they were concerned about. So wait, people say it was a conspiracy because it it was a conspiracy for a long time, right? But now you would admit it's a real plan. Or would you not admit that? Do you think it's still conspiracy level? So when conspiracies become real plans, that tends to be when when um, <laughs> political change happens. Might have been because the UK left and they realized, well, I guess since they're not here anymore. Oh yeah, that's why they said, yeah, they, they basically said now the UK's left, the biggest opposition to the UK, uh, the EU army is gone. Yeah. Let's go ahead and do it. But do you personally think, uh, as someone who is a NATO member, but not a EU member, uh, if I currently know Canada's EU membership status, but would you say that there is a point of an EU army? So the real point of an EU army would be basically to defend against Russia. But every single Eastern border state is already a NATO member, besides Finland. But I mean, Russia can have Finland, that's fine. Multinational armies in such a way like that, they can also be used against breakaway parts of the multination. Yeah, it sounds like such a Game of Thrones thing. That's what the British were afraid of, was that the EU army would be used against EU members to keep it in line. A national army will not want to fight its own people, but a multinational army would not have the same issues. Like, for instance, in the Russian Empire, if you took people from Siberia and you sent them over to um, Poland, they'd be like, I don't know what Poland is. I don't have anything related to these people, so I do not have issues with suppressing them. That's one of the conspiracist issues with an army as such. Whether that will actually manifest is a completely different story. How about we just make a perfect analogy and say, uh, would the US army be used to stop Texas leaving? Would Texans in the US, like, would they have to get rid of Texans from the national US military? Or would they just send the US military in if Texas broke away against the rules, you know, unilaterally? The United States has established that you cannot leave through historical reasons. Yeah, that is as much as Texans like to believe that that is not the case. They do have their own power grid, so they could. They so do. that's all you need, right? There's, there's East Coast, there's West Coast, and there's Texas. <laughs> I love that. Like. <laughs> It shows the size of it, really. But yeah, all you need is electricity and a flag. And what else is there in a country? And the UK never had the same power grid as the rest of the EU, so that's probably why they left. (laughs) Do you think we could take every secession movement in history or like in the last hundred years and be like, well, power grids, all what it comes down to? Because notice how Scotland was on the same power grid as the rest of the UK didn't leave. Yeah, that's pretty true. And the uh, <laughs> west of Canada, I think, is on a different power grid than the east. So things are not, not very looking out very good well for that. What did I just say? 
Are you trying to get the Wexit movement going again? The power grids. Are you going to try and stir them up? Power to the people. <laughs> power to the people, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I never considered it, but like, electricity is a genuinely very big pool, uh, big tool in uh, state creation. I know um, that Kosovo has a lot of issues of getting their power from Serbia that has led to lots of Europe-wide issues because they're on the same thing. So I imagine... We could actually probably draw a pretty nice line of power grid. Hey, did you know why America and the UK decided to become such great allies? They both decided that they couldn't be bothered to learn another language. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I've got a whole continent full of people that speak other languages next door. But here I am speaking to a Canadian 3,000 kilometers away. Maybe 4,000. Just saying. I'm included in that. Too. Actually, did you know that St. John's in Newfoundland is closer to England than it is to Vancouver? I did know that. I, I would be shocked if it wasn't true because of how wide Canada is. Yeah, the Atlantic is, is actually fairly small. The Atlantic, I mean, compared to other oceans, it's quite small, yeah. Since I'm obligated to complain about PEI, we made a bridge between New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. Like a really long bridge that's so long you need to curve it so people don't like fall asleep while lying on it. Oh, Jesus. We made this giant bridge just to connect 100,000 people to the mainland. And the reason they did this is because it's a province. If it was just a random island, they wouldn't have done this. I thought it was half a million, by the way, but it's 156,000, you're right. Jesus, that's so tiny for a bridge that... Yeah, you're right. It's it's entirely because they're a province. Man, that's a bad use of money. Being so small, it allows it to act in ways that are... You would think that if you're small, you would be unable to act in accordance with your interests. But no, it's actually when you're medium-sized, you are prevented from doing things because people actually care about you. They care about you in the sense that you could be a problem. But if you're small, you're not a problem to anyone. So people just kind of let you do whatever you want. So for instance, Andorra is a perfect example of this, where it's not in the EU at all, but for some reason the EU just kind of lets it tag along. Yeah, they It lets it do whatever it wants. Yeah, they're, they're in this funny place where they're not in the EU. Including with um, tax. But they're not in the EU, so they have this like exception from a lot of the rules. But functionally speaking, they use the euro... And even though they're not in Schengen, they do technically have border controls. To get to them, you have to go through Schengen countries. And anyone from a Schengen country is allowed in. You just might be searched first. Like, it's a very weird arrangement they have. These tiny micro-political entities, they have a lot of freedom to act that larger ones would not. Because the people do not care what the small things are doing. They're like ants that are running around that people do not notice at all. Actually, okay, you know, actually, I've, I've been thinking about this one a lot. So, and I have the opposite opinion to you on this. Because I think... I agree with you probably that the best size of sovereignty, the best size of a nation is very small or very big. Those seem to be the two most successful types. But I think the reason that very small countries do so well it's not they have more power they have the same power you know one sovereignty you know let's say that's a, a type of power but spread amongst fewer people the reason monaco can be such a tax haven and you know can be so hugely beneficial from that is because they have that one sovereignty power that even france next door has they're pretty much equal in that way in, cer in certain ways they have the same amount of power despite you know france being several uh you know 100 times bigger and the same with andorra versus spain and france they can basically benefit hugely and it's just too much an issue to stop because they are theoretically a country and we have to technically respect that for some reason yeah and that describes pei as well they're technically a province you're saying microstates for the win i would definitely advocate for living in a microstate yeah like if, for instance i don't know what city you live in i'm sure you don't want to tell the internet but if you 
Actually, I do know your city, but uh, if, if you could take that city and make it separate to the rest of Canada, that would be, you know, make it a whole province of its own, you would benefit immensely, right? I live in Montreal, I'm okay with saying okay, that. So. And it kind of does work like that, because Montreal is a very English-speaking city in the French-speaking Quebec. So what's interesting is um, I'm a linguistic minority in a province which is a linguistic minority in the country of Canada, which is English. So I'm an English-speaking minority in a French-speaking province in an English-speaking country. <laughs> yeah, no, the, I, it shocked me to learn how many English speakers there were in um, Quebec and how many French speakers there were in Ontario. Like, it's a weird mishmash minority. But English speakers don't get as many rights in Quebec than French speakers do in the other provinces, right? That is technically true, but I'm not very mad about that. Like, I moved here voluntarily. I'm perfectly comfortable with Quebec being its French-speaking self. In fact, I like it like that. It's charming. But I did meet people who were born here, and they only speak English. Really? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed. Which was kind of weird, because I was like, I learned how to speak French in school, despite the fact that I didn't even live in Quebec. Like, so I don't know how you managed to go your whole life about learning how to speak French, but okay. Wait, you can speak French? Like, a lot, or, like, enough, just, you know, possible? Like, a lot. Really? Bonjour. Like I can speak it fluently, but my accent might be bad, but I can speak it. I could live in France. Let's do a whole French podcast. I can only speak 10 words of French, by the way. You'd have to do most of the speaking. I hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, real quick. So I have been to Montreal. It's one of the like cities I've been in for like just under 24 hours. So I want to talk about my favorite things and you can be like, is that actually cool if you live there? First of all, my most notable things. One is, um, it's really far south, but it's crazy snowy. Is that just all of Canada? Is that, is like, in the winter at least, I should say, like January. Is that common for you? So the Gulf Stream takes water from the Caribbean Sea and pushes it up to Europe. So Europe is a lot warmer than it would otherwise be. So it's very cold here. Yeah, Montreal's on roughly on the same... Like it gets very cold here, particularly because we're on the interior of the continent. Even the Maritimes are somewhat warmed by just the temperating effect of... Because oceans can't get too cold, yeah. The continent does not get that. We do get, however, we do get something called lake effect snow, where the evaporation from the lakes goes into the air and then makes it snow a lot in the general area of the Great Lakes. Oh, fun fact. But yeah, I, when, I, when I went to Montreal, it was, despite being roughly the same latitude as London, it was minus 25 degrees Celsius and it started snowing while I was there. And I was just like, is this, this seems a bit intense, but uh, people just were used to it. Like this is normal. Um, but yeah, so as one of the results of that, one of my favorite things in any city in the world, uh, Montreal has its own version of that's almost as good as Toronto's. That underground city in Montreal, to me, that is the coolest thing. This is like civilization 2.0. I don't know why every city, even ones without huge amounts of cold or hot, don't have this same concept of like, what if we built below the city too? What if we had this whole pathway system? Because when it's minus 25 outside, you don't want to go out, right? Or do you? Is, is minus 25 nothing to you? Mm -hmm. No, we don't. people don't want to go outside when it's really cold, but they do. What's your personal um, limit? Would you say in Celsius? Because screw Americans, like learn the, learn the real system of temperature. Um, <laughs> what would you say the lowest you can get to before you're like, it's cold, I would rather avoid this. Minus 20? <laughs> so minus 18, you're like, ah. You know, I could do it. I'll go. I'll, I'll go for a nice walk to McDonald's. Do you eat McDonald's a lot? Although not to McDonald's, but that that's a different issue, and I don't I don't want to get you started in that. Oh no! Do you, do you know about my my thing for McDonald's? <laughs> yeah. So let's not get into that because it's um. Yeah. Let's let's not get into that. Oh, okay. You know what? Can you? So we don't get into it, but so I know because I'm intensely curious. In one word, 
what is your problem with McDonald's? I won't even pest you on it. I just want to know the one word, the, the general niche area, and then we can leave it and we can talk about Montreal again. Corporate. Okay. You know, that's, that's, that's fair. But to me, I could use that word to describe why I love it. But you know what? We'll, we'll have a McDonald's debate another time. That can be a, a topic to go in the archives. The last <laughs> thing about Montreal is despite the fact that it's a major international city, I know it's because of Lords in Quebec or whatever, but even in cities you wouldn't expect in like China and stuff, it's English first, then the language, then this. Everything had to be French bigger and then English. And it was like, it was the most jarring city in the world to me that Canada of all places has the least English friendly city I've seen in a while. Actually, did you know more people in the Netherlands can speak English than in Canada? Really? As a percentage? Uh, is that including second? Oh, yes, it would have to include second. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> Cut that. Ignore that. Ignore that. <laughs> yes, include. Not. Yeah. Yeah. More people can speak English as a first or second language in the Netherlands than can speak English as a first or second language in Canada as a percentage of the population. And why would you say that that is? The reason is because of Quebec and the Quebec don't want to learn English because it's, as I said, I, I know people in Montreal who only speak English and don't want to learn French. I don't know how they did it, but they did. There's people in Quebec who only know French and don't want to learn to speak English. It's because the language issue is very political and so people take a political stand on not learning the other language. I think that's stupid, but also I can totally see that. I can totally see that. Like, if you see if you see your identity and your culture as being linked to language, then by learning the other language, you're shrinking your own culture and stuff. Even though in reality, what you're doing is just not being able to communicate with people that live in the same area as you, which is <laughs> ludicrous. Canada is not a very logical country to exist. And the more you talk about it, the more that becomes true. I don't know why everyone thinks it should kept existing. Honestly, my guess would be iconography. The the flag and the the concept like oh Canada are quite big, and then it's known as being like America but more liberal, right? But liberal in the American sense of the word, not in the actual sense of the word. And to a lot of people, that's like oh that's cool. Like that's more internationally approachable than America. America has a big stigma, whereas Canada's like, yeah, everyone loves Canada. Like, you're the lovable, lovable guy. Exactly. Yeah, it's brand. pretty much, it only exists to project a brand to the rest of the world. If you, if you will, Canada is kind of like a corporation. Which, I guess, is a good enough reason for any country to exist as a country could exist, I suppose. I really think that the branding that you portray towards the world is such a huge part of what defines you as a country now, because to get the world to do business with you, they have to know you and want to do business with you. And the world doesn't know Latvia very well, sadly. But the world does know Canada. And the world does know, even if they get it confused with which yeah. name, whether it's England, Britain, the UK, or whatever, the world does know the UK. Separately, I'd argue, to how it knows the EU. Good opportunity to bring this <laughs> really long tangent back into the EU. So... There's many countries in the EU that benefit amazingly for having a good brand that other people can recognize in the form of the EU uh -huh. that they wouldn't otherwise have. And so Brexit happens because the UK has the ability to have its own brand. So it is capable, much like how it, since it has its own electrical grid, it can make it on its own. Electric grids and brands, they're linked. We've proved it right here. So the big question I have is... Do you think Brexit will be a success? Because I think no one knows for sure. Like, we need to clarify that right now. It could, like, no matter how much you think you know, no one out there knows, right? Can we confirm that, like, it's all based on a lot of things that have yet to happen that could hugely sway this, right? Would you agree that it's 
not known for sure right now. Yes, it is an unknown quantity. Yeah, people who act like it's definitely... We do not know what it will be. Even if you're the most anti-Brexit person in the world, you'd have to admit there's a chance it could be successful. Even if you're the most pro-Brexit person in the world, you'd have to admit there's a chance that it goes balls up, right? Like That could be said about most things. Yeah, most geopolitical events. The USSR reforming could be good for the economy of Russia. Well, for the economy of the states it picks up. Yes, global warming could be good for Canada and Russia. It will be. It will be good for Canada, right? Canada's one of the few countries that's just purely benefiting from global yep. warming. Yep, we're going to get land. more land that is available. That might have been good like a long time ago, but in this day and age, having large quantities of land is not very useful anymore. Because we're all moving into cities where we use less land? It's cities that are the foremost drivers of economic development. Yeah, I, t I totally agree. And the fact that our cities are so spread apart is one of the main challenges that Canada has. And the European Union, which I am now, tr now instead of <laughs> always tangenting back to Russia, I'm Yay. trying to tangent back into the European Union. The cities are very close to each other, which enables it to have very successful economic development. And the most successful is the Rhine area, because the cities are extraordinarily close to each other. Yeah, the but I, I mean, the Rhine area is entirely within one country for the most part, like outside of Strasbourg and stuff. Like most of the wildly successful corridors in Europe are between Germany and countries that are next to Germany, right? Not by not by not by some EU conspiracy. I, we have to clarify this because again, the EU is an extension of Germany by other means. Not by some wide EU conspiracy. There's not some German sitting in a room trying to plan the Fourth Reich, like my comment section will suggest. But instead, it's because <laughs> that is just where the sent. Like you know, it's it surrounds nine countries in mostly easy crossings with big. Yeah, Germany is yeah, Germany's in the center of Europe. So it's obviously going to be the center of Europe. Right. And that's that's before you consider its history as being a giant economic power. And it's like, it, even, bef even if you exclude all that stuff, it would be a huge beneficiary. And having that and then being the center of Europe and also one of its founding members and one of the guiding members and also its largest member, it's like, why are you surprised that Germany does well from the, the organization that it joined? I don't know why people act like it's such a big conspiracy. Something that's interesting to link this to China is China borders the most countries as any country in the world because it's in the center of Asia. If you orient, as orient used to mean that you would turn the map to face east at the top. So if you orient China with east at the top, you'll see that it kind of looks like a Germany. Yeah. Uh, in relation to Asia, in that it's in the center. I 100% see that, by the way. But real quick, I just have to correct you because one, you just untangented and then went straight into another one. And two... Uh, the country that borders the most country is... Oh, it's actually tied between Russia and China. Never mind. But it's not technically... <laughs> well, whatever. Russia's <laughs> giant. It's go of course, it's going to border a lot of countries. But China is smaller, but it still borders the same amount of countries as giant Russia can. Just to uh, let the audience know how many countries it borders, it borders both Afghanistan and North Korea, borders both Vietnam and Kazakhstan, as well as in, you know, like you could do this forever, just like it borders places that you imagine as being on opposite sides of the world. I mean, Russia borders Norway and North Korea, so. That fact, every time I hear it after forgetting it. But that's because Russia actually yeah. <laughs> is on yeah, opposite like sides of the world. Um, earlier, it's like literally it's so big that once you went, it, it used to be so big that once you went far enough, it'd be easier to not cross back to the other side of Russia via Russia, but just go the other way around the world, which is insane, but that's a thing. Yes, that is, that is a very interesting concept. I wonder if there is something Ooh. I could be making later 
that um, is related to that. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Self-promo, self-promo. But the if you look at all the most successful countries in the world right now, um, in terms of GDP per capita, because to me that's like that's my favorite measure of success, but you notice how they're all very much cityed countries. Like, the reason Russia and the US and China are successful is because their location in, in Germany, they're located well, they're big, they've got high populations, blah, blah, blah. Those are important factors to be successful as a big country. But small countries are more successful per person. And I think that's because they're all focused in cities and they can use that, like, sovereignty abuse. And in the case of Qatar, it's, like, natural resources. But in Singapore, it's like, yeah, we are a country, we will undercut you all. They're, like, the brutal corporate competitor in a business and they they destroy the world and proud they're number one but then monaco same thing like all taking advantage of their sovereignty of their unit of being a unit of country and i feel like the eu together can do the same thing but it feels worthwhile to be a smaller member in that block but for the uk germany and france the only three members that i'd say could reliably leave and have a big enough brand i don't know if it is worthwhile without some form of extra concessions right and that's why France gets the CAP, and that's why Germany gets... CAP? Oh, sorry, the Common Agricultural Policy. They got a bunch of money for their farms. It, like, they were a uh, net receiver of EU funds for, like, a ludicrous amount of time. <laughs> like, for a, for a, given that they're meant to okay. be to subsidize poor areas, like, you know, EU funds, basically... Like France was raking it in for a while, and then that's. I feel like I'd say I'd say Germany got the fact that all the free trade benefits Germany more than anyone else because they're at the center, right? Like they they push for the free trade organization. France pushes for the kind of you know stereotypically for like the governmental organization that gives money, and then the UK kind of got to be independent in a lot of political senses. But yeah, the UK. I think to swing it round and answer those first questions. I, I feel like, so as of now, Brexit Day, there is a long period with a lot of things happening that will decide everything here. But I feel like the UK will come out on the other side in a in a state that isn't going to be contradictory to the globe blocks. I feel like the UK could be a conduit to the world, potentially. But I always worry when I say stuff like that, that it's like, well, I think that because I live here. And that's why I want your I said, I think the UK is the linchpin of the organizations that define the West. So it's obviously a very connected country, which is connected to its extensive maritime history. So I do think that the UK can be successful like it was successful during the continental system, which is when the UK was barred from trading with the continent, and thus it had to increase its trade mm -hmm. with the rest of the world. They also were trying to ban the rest of the world from trading with the continent. And that's what caused the War of 1812 with America. So that might not necessarily be a good thing, <laughs> but <laughs> the UK was able to make the most of that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the man, my history for the like Napoleon era is like really, really rough and sketchy. It's like the when when you first mentioned continental system, I was like, I vaguely know, and it's like, oh yeah, the system of borrowing a trade and stuff. Like it's a really important time for European history, but. At the same time that was happening, that's when the UK was having its most successful century, just ignoring Europe, basically, right? Yeah, the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, the first country to do so, which led to the world we have now. Wait, actually, this this is a stupid hypothetical because I'm not informed enough, but so humor me. If the UK didn't industrialize, would it have been a like just a few years and then another country would? Or do you think humanity would be like 40 years behind if we, you know? Industrialization probably occurred because of coal 
in the sense that the steam engine was invented to drain coal mines to make it easier to mine more coal. And the reason is because you obviously have coal around, so you can use that coal to power your steam mm -hmm. engine to drain the mines. And also, the first railways uh -huh. were for transporting coal to other parts of mm -hmm. the country. So the industrial revolution may have occurred because there's a dramatic increase of the usage of coal, because there was a dramatic decrease in the average world temperature in the 18th century when the industrial revolution was getting started. Sweden, when it invaded Russia in the Great Northern War, and that was the coldest winter on record ever. Really? Wait, I don't know how cold it is. Coal usage increased during the mini ice age of the 1700s. And so the Industrial Revolution was a product of the dramatic increase in the desire for coal. So the railways transported coal, the steam engine was created to drain the coal mines. So having the wet coal that you needed to drain was probably the thing that caused the Industrial Revolution to occur. Because the thing about Industrial Revolution is it feeds off itself. If you have the component manufacturing, if you have widget manufacturers, those widgets can be used to make other things. Like for instance, the steam engine was probably invented in Ptolemaic Egypt, but they had no usage for it because what would you use a steam engine for? Exactly, yeah. It... Now keep in mind that the first steam engine you could design as like an intellectual curiosity would not be very good steam engines. They would be steam engines that were small, and probably could not do much work. And for instance, the materials would not be good enough yet to dramatically increase the size of those steam engines. So the concept of the steam engine is not the thing that causes the industrial revolution. Rather, it is the component manufacturers being existing that causes the industrial revolution, which allows you to have new forms of industrialization. Like for instance, the Watt steam engine was not the first steam engine. It was an improvement over the new Commons steam, steam engine. And what Watt was, he repaired steam engines and he made components. So he was a component engineer who looked at the steam engine and said, this is a really sucky steam engine. I think I, I can make it better. And that's what created the useful steam engine that was later used for other things. So you need to have the extensive component manufacturers in order to have the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I, like it's, you can't, in, like to, to simplify, if you don't mind, you can't have one of the parts of the industrial, you need to do it all at the same time. That's why it's not easy and didn't naturally happen everywhere yes. immediately. And that's why trying to do it in Russia and China led to many, many, many deaths, right? Or do you disagree with that bit? Do you think that was all a choice? That's an interesting question because industrialization was already occurring in China and Russia before the communist revolutions. Yeah, there were factories doing the, sh yeah. But the fact that it's so separated, the countries are so large, meant that it was only basically like certain areas where it occurred. The UK benefits from the fact that it's smaller and concentrated. Mm -hmm. So the industries in one part of the country can support industries in the other parts of the countries, which is a lot more difficult to do in China and Russia. Like for instance, the what Mao did was they decided to make an industrial heartland in the mountain southwest as a strategic decision rather than an economic decision because the industrial heartland of China was invaded by mm -hmm. Japan during the Second World War. And they were also concerned, this was part of the Soviet Sino-Soviet split, they were also concerned about invasions from Russia. As Russia, what it had done was when it invaded Japanese Manchuria, it dismantled the industrial machinery and carried it off to yep. the Soviet Union. So they didn't want that to happen. So what they did was they, through a purely strategic decision that was economically useless, they decided to make an industrial heartland in the mountain southwest region. And this was this was not murderous and it was not did not kill that many people, but it did waste a lot of resources. Yeah, like wasting resources is 
It's not like the Great Wheat Forward, where they decided to make steel in their backyards and it destroyed all the steel. But that's a different story. So it didn't cause a mass deaths, but it was yeah, not very yeah, useful. Like, obviously, you can industrialize without killing people, as is evidenced by all the non-communist countries that did so without millions or tens of millions or potentially nine digits of deaths. But the, the thing I was going to say is like by pushing it all to happen centrally and by making a lot of questionable decisions towards that goal, that's why it happened. But I, I kind of feel like one of the things uh, my historian friend said that like stuck with me for a long time is like, there are a lot, a lot of people who, if you would have told them beforehand, you know, to 8 million people will die or 20 million people will die, but in exchange we will industrialize 20 years earlier, they would have still taken the choice, you know? And that's that's a... That's always stuck with me as like a, would they? I want to know your thoughts. Well, it's one of those things that are, a sacrifice was made in the past that benefits mm -hmm. us greatly today. Because people today could say similar things in regards to the global warming pro of climate change, which is kind of a product of the Industrial Revolution. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Where it would be necessary to, in a sense, deindustrialize rapidly in order to avert a catastrophe. It's effectively what we have to do. Certain people would think that even if that kills a decent chunk of people, it's necessary in order to save the rest. For instance, because the Industrial Revolution did kill people, but it also saved countless numbers of people by... Increasing living standards? Developments, which enabled better agricultural techniques that dramatically decreased child mortality. The reason we're not farmers, we can owe directly to the Industrial Revolution. And if we were farmers, we would be very likely to have died before we reached 10. And the fact that there's, it wasn't even considered that we might die when we were that young, that is... All of that technological improvements that increase in the standards of living is all due to that, right? So are you saying the big question yeah. of climate change and global warming or whatever is that we, because we have to deindustrialize a lot of stuff. Like we need to stop burning a lot of the resources without any care like we have for a long time. But which way around would you make the argument today if like you can kill people's, like, you know, you can, you, you, you're basically killing people either way. You can kill people by decreasing their living standards or you can wait until the planet potentially kills some number of people with the extreme temperatures which is the noble one that you wish it's I, I know i get what you're trying to say that from the time it was insane to kill that many people but in the long run it's saved a lot of people even though it was an inhumane decision which way round is that for this issue because i can't see it if you get what i'm saying they both seem pretty cruel there's a certain aspect that the industrial revolution may have occurred simultaneously to a point where there was a dramatic overpopulation mm -hmm. sort of thing happening in the sense that pre-industrial society could not support the populations that existed at the time. But after industrialization, we had managed to avert a Malthusian catastrophe. But in the process of doing that, we ended up killing a lot of people. The problem with climate change is not necessarily that it will make it too hot to live. It's not going to increase temperatures by that much. The problem is that it's going to change the carrying capacity of certain areas such that they are below what they currently support. Like for instance, the population in a certain area might currently be able to live there without starving. They could produce the food they need. But if the climate changes, that could dramatically decrease the population support capacity of that area. But at the same time, it will increase the population support capacity of places like Northern Canada. It's possible that the temperature increase overall will increase the carrying capacity of the earth. But not in the places where it currently exists. And so it could technically be a positive for the world to be I... two degrees warmer. Yeah. But the problem is 
regionally, this will cause massive disruptions. That will cause massive, massive migrations. Climate change is born by certain countries a lot more than others. For instance, this is this is a fun one. Uh, yes. The Maldives will be wiped out of existence. Like there's no saving them anymore. It's just how many years will they last? They have to massively rebuild or they're gone, right? Do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think there's a chance they survive? They're gone. Yep. They're not long for this world. There is a country that is being wiped and, and anywhere near the equator, really, especially the hottest regions, but like anywhere that's already close to the edge is going to be pushed over it on the hot sense of that scale. But I, I agree with you in that sense that it's probably a bad discussion to have because it encourages people to be complacent, which is not a good thing for a big issue. But you're right that there are a lot of benefits uh, yeah. that we just aren't really mentioning, uh, you know, like Canada and the Northwest Passage even. Like a whole new trade option is going to be opening up. The problem with climate change is the change more so than the heating of the climate. If you could have decided on a temperature for the planet that was ideal, you would probably pick a slightly warmer temperature because technically we're kind of still in an ice age mm -hmm. as there's lots of ice around. And it's not exactly clear if, if being in an ice age is a good thing. Although all of civilization has existed during an ice age, so perhaps you need to have an ice age to have civilization. Who knows? It seems possible. If I was going to pick an ideal temperature, I'd probably pick a slightly warmer temperature. However, everything has developed with the current temperature. So everything is located where the current temperature wants it to be located. So for instance, Russia's Siberian Railroad is located on the strip of land which is useful. Below it is the Gobi Desert. Above it is the... Endless Siberian wastelands. Siberian yeah. tundra. <laughs> if this changes and the good stretch of Russia is located a little bit higher in the Siberian tundra, all of the infrastructure will now be Gobi Desert type of stuff. If we assume that the climate simply will move slightly up north. So Russia would need to completely change its infrastructure, even though it might benefit from the increased amount of land that was available. Yeah, every there's always huge upsides and huge downsides. But the biggest takeaway is that regardless of where or what the upsides are, the reallocation has to be significant. Some cities are going to benefit. Yes, it is immensely disruptive. To even remove away from the country level, some cities will be now located. Because in the same way that like, I know, Liverpool in the UK used to be a port city, isn't really a big port anymore. Now it's questionably located. Uh, you know, it used to be well located, now it's not. The reverse has happened to a lot of cities that, you know, for instance, the inland ones that Mao, you know, decided to make a fortress stronghold. And this exact same thing is going to occur and we're going to have a massive inefficient allocation of resources and people tend not to like resources being moved. Yeah, ideally we would want to avert climate change simply so we do not need to deal with the catastrophic disruption more so than because we don't want the world to be warmer. I think the other argument, like we should just mention it just because like we're, we're talking purely geopolitically. There are like uh, ecological arguments, like there are species of plants and animals that just cannot live where they currently are with increased temperatures. There's a lot of animal death that will occur. Yeah. But we've killed way more animals without temperature being a problem. Like we do that for fun as a species. Well, the thing about that is the animals and geopolitics are linked in the same sense that things could migrate. If the change was slow, then the migration could occur alongside the slow change. Like for instance, the mini ice age during the 1700s, going down was a lot slower than we're going up. So it was not something that people noticed that much that things were getting colder so much as a century passed and suddenly it was a lot colder than it once was. And for instance, one of the theories as to why the mini ice age occurred is because 
when the diseases reached the Americas. Areas which had been cleared by the indigenous inhabitants started to regrow forests. So the carbon in the atmosphere decreased due to the epidemics from the Eurasian diseases reaching the Americas, Mm -hmm. which is similar to how when the Mongols came and they killed a lot of people, the increased trade spread diseases that also changed the climate. I think to wrap that all up in a bow, people hate the change to them, even if the change is a net positive to the globe. And that's why to in all these examples, it's like a people suffered, but the human race as a whole thrived. And it depends on whether you view yourself as a human race or as a whatever group you are. But most people view themselves as some small knit group, like you are a Montrealite, Montrealan. I am a British person and, you know, or a European even. And these small labels are why within those labels we suffer because lots of places suffer disproportionately because of the nature of humans being spread. Is that that a good summary? Yeah, that does it kind of. <laughs> I try my best. What's your favorite EU member state? What is the context to which I pick the favorite EU member state? Because like, that is not the same question as what is my favorite country in Europe. Like, if I have a favorite country in Europe, that'd be a different question than an EU member state. Because it has to be something related to the EU for it to be my favorite EU member state. If I was just picking my favorite country, that'd be a different answer, probably. Oh, I see what you're saying. I was just thinking, like, you know, there's 28 member states of the EU, or 27 as of tomorrow. Therefore, which one do you like the most, you know? Because, like, if I'm picking my favorite EU member state, it has to be how that country relates to the EU. Not necessarily. I I could pick my favorite Asian country and it not be related to how Asian it is. I could like the least Asian. No, but you said EU member state. I did say that. Well, anyway, Luxembourg is my favorite EU member state because of how it interacts with the EU. You mean how the EU sends them all the money and like puts all their headquarters in a country that has the size of a tiny city. I dislike Luxembourg because it proves one of the most irritating facts about the EU is it's it. This sounds stupid and against everything else I've said, and it kind of is, but the fact that in the same way that every country is viewed as equal in some senses and therefore small countries can abuse that, it's true within the EU too. Like, the Luxembourgish Prime Minister became the EU Commissioner, the most powerful man in Europe if there is such a thing. And that to me is silly. Like, why do you get to pretend like you're a full country when you have half a million people when there are countries with 80 million people that are also considered one country and get one EU Commissioner? Or one yet yeah, you commissioner. So what you're saying is that Luxembourg is the PEI of Europe. It is 100. It's the same thing. Like they get a bunch of money because they're like central. You know, like it's a good. Com- Basically, they exist because it's a compromise between France and Germany. Like put your political stuff there, sure, why not? And it's a bit like, but why? Why do they get to abuse that and get a bunch of money? I I have um my brother's girlfriend is uh, Luxembourgish, so like we, I've been there with her. We talk about it a lot, and it's just like, oh yeah, the way it works in Luxembourg is you get a good job with the EU and they pay it like there's just they, they get a huge economic benefit for like ha- happenstance and I I don't know why there's a part of me that's like that it, if that money came from nowhere that's fine if that money comes from your know, ability to sell things to people that's fine but in the case of Luxembourg it's their ability to exist in a union and get a disproportionate amount of other EU member states money as a result of how countries work and that is frustrating <laughs> Well, it's the capital of the EU, so... Brussels actually is the capital of the EU. Luxembourg is the second uh, place where things... Do you, do you know that EU has free capitals? I'm, sh- I'm sure you do, but did you know? There's, fr- oh, there's free um, yeah. government bodies, and they're in three different cities, and they're quite far apart, too. Is, isn't it Strasbourg? Yeah, yeah, Strasbourg, Brussels, and 
uh, Luxembourg. This is one of the most ludicrous things, but they have to have a train that goes back and forth. Like, on the weekends, like, once every month or maybe once every week, they have to go to Strasbourg, so they take all their office files. So there's, like, an EU train that just goes between those places. It's really dumb. Europe is dumb. <laughs> the reason the capital is on those three areas is the same reason that Ottawa is the capital of Canada. Because Ottawa was in between Ontario and Quebec. This relates to the EU because Brussels, Luxembourg, and Strasbourg are halfway in between the border with France and Germany, which are the, of the triumvirate members of the EU. The third one is the UK, uh -huh. which is um, the UK has managed to has managed to crassus himself and get him outside. But anyway, so the Rhine Valley is like the Ottawa River in that it separates the two major blocks of the EU, the Germans and the French. Mm -hmm. The EU works as kind of like a triumvirate of the UK, France, and Germany. The way triumvirates work is that if you have a gun with one bullet and there's three people, if anyone decides to shoot that gun at the other person, they've lost their bullet, the other person's dead and can't use their bullet. And so the last person, they have one bullet, where they can shoot the last person. So when you have a triumvirate of three people, it is stable because- Any two members can overpower the other. No one has an incentive to act against any of the other two. Yeah. And so that's what it worked in the Roman triumvirate is Pompey, Caesar, and Crassus could not directly challenge each other without causing the third one who wasn't involved to win. But what happened is Crassus went to Parthia and got himself killed. So then we were left with Pompey and Caesar who had a civil war. So potential instability that you could come about because the stability that had two big countries of France and England being able to counterbalance Germany is no longer there. Because Germany has a higher population yep. than either France or the UK. And it's also richer per person than either the France or the UK. Uh -huh. So its economy is much larger than France's. Yep. And so France needs the United Kingdom to counterbalance Germany. And without it, the EU is going to be an even more German-dominated bloc because France is yeah. not able to counterbalance it. Theoretically, for the record, Italy should be able to help counterbalance. There isn't really anything else that could counterbalance it besides potentially Italy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, but Italy, Italy is is Italy is. Can we just say it? It's it's impolite, but Italy needs to get their sh together. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> France has one of the most impressive military records mm -hmm. ever. And all we do is make fun of them for surrendering this one time. The <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thing we make fun of Italy for is switching sides. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then it turns out that... Uh, Actually correct on that one, eh? The other thing we make fun of them is for Germany needing to save them when they mess up. <laughs> in the Vulcan. This is understandable for in Egypt when they're facing against the British Empire. But this wasn't the only time that they needed Germany to come save them. This also happened against Greece. Yep. Gotta be the most embarrassing. Where Italy invaded Greece from Albania, but then like in Egypt where after the invasion the British managed to push into Italian Libya, the Greeks managed to push the Italians back into Albania. So Germany had to come save Italy from Greece during the World Wars. I always love that as a uh, as a historical note. It's something that always has to be said as like, you know what? People like to say Italy's incompetent, but it literally, I mean, size-wise, that shouldn't have been a thing. That shouldn't have, in the slightest. But somehow, somehow it did. But yeah, no, that's, that's the big problem with like, even though Italy theoretically has the numbers to be a counterbalance, it doesn't have the unity or the organization, sadly. Like it's very, it's very divided in a way that very few countries are, right? We both agree, therefore, there are big countries that are successful, there are small countries that are successful. 
The UK is leaving the EU, probably, most likely, asterisks, who knows, you'll see a day after this video goes live. But Scotland would like to leave the UK, with one of the big purposes being to rejoin the EU. How do you feel about that? It could potentially happen, because the UK would not be able to veto its admission to the EU. Like, for instance, one of the problems with Catalonia leaving is that Spain would automatically veto any decision to allow Catalonia to join the EU. But the problem is, is that Spain might veto Scotland joining the EU. Only if they left, you know. So that there's no precedent being set for allowing Catalonia to join the EU. Only if they left unilaterally. I want to just clarify this because uh, it's said a lot on the internet. Uh, they very specifically said if Scotland leaves legally, they wouldn't veto them. They'd only veto if they left unilaterally because otherwise they'd have to veto Serbia joining and Montenegro joining because... You can't, they don't just veto a country joining because it's part of another big country. They veto the idea of unilateral secession. But then the question becomes, would the UK let Scotland leave? I think so. In Spain, the referendum was not officially sanctioned. Mm -hmm. They didn't allow it to happen. And the reason is because the Spanish constitution forbids, disallows any way of the autonomous communities becoming federalized. It's just a weird thing that is put in the Spanish constitution. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird country. Um, even though that Spain is effectively a federation in all but name, uh -huh. the referendum, from Spain's perspective, was illegal. Uh -huh. But the reason is that Spain has declared that there is no legal way for any of its parts to ever leave. Oh, really? They've said there's no way. So by saying that, it not, would... Not a single way of multilateral secession. They would never alter their constitution. They could never even, they're saying. The, the constitution has defined it so that even federalizing the autonomous communities, let alone letting them secede, is unconstitutional. So by saying that it would accept a legal secession is a very legal, legalese way of Spain saying that it would never accept Catalonia joining. Because it, it, there's no possible way for Catalonia to legally secede from Spain. So, but why did they accept Croatia and Slovenia into the EU? Why didn't they veto that? Because they left, they left their country in a somewhat fraught way. I think Yugoslavia recognized... They did, but only after a long period of fraughtness. Yeah. The secession of these places. Like, for instance, Serbia allowed Montenegro to bilaterally secede. But they did not allow Kosovo to secede. But, I mean... That's that's kind of out of context because Mon Montenegro was at the like you know they were both distinct separate units and they both wanted to do it and they they agreed a long kind of thing whereas Kosovo was just like we outie you know yeah as unilateral so and I think I don't know how the Bosnia and Croatia separated from Yugoslavia I do know so Slovenia just kind of one day said yo we independent and then they managed to using guerrilla warfare, stop the any military thing happening. And then when that was done successfully, Croatia's like, hey, about that independence thing, looks pretty good. We're going to do the same thing now. And then I think Bosnia's where the wars got pretty serious because it's like, well, you know, this is kind of a big problem. That is my understanding of the history. I learned that from a Slovenian like professor rather than the internet though, so what do I know? Okay, let's just... I Croatia I need to know if that is if it was legal or whatever. I think what what occurred during Yugoslavia is that Serbs were counter seceding, but the secession of the big entities, the Croatia Bosnia was allowed. It's just that Serb counter secessions was where the conflict was happening. Really, you think Bosnia's so it says here that yeah, like after they agreed to renew the move the date, Croatia was allowed, but the Bosnian Serbs boycotted the referendum and 
Man, the Bosnian War is messed up. Every time I read about it, I'm like, this is sad. Yeah, that's like the Balkans in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> like, the layers deep this goes too, where it's like, oh yeah, it's the Serbs in Bosnia that wanted to break apart from... They wanted to independence their independence, but that was too many layers of independence. So, as a result, they fought a war and killed each other, despite effectively being the same people. Speaking the same language. Speaking the same language. And it's like, man, that is... That's like the one counterexample to our, if you have the same language, then you can generally get along. I mean, if you call it a different language, like I think if we called American English just American, and you're like, do you, I speak English, I speak American, the dialect of English. <laughs> There's an expression in linguistics that a language is a dialect of an army. Oh yeah, I love I love that as a, it's one of my favorite quotes from history. Do you think um, if America just decides American is a language, and they're like, if you want to speak it, you gotta start calling it American now, would Canada speak American or would Canada speak English? I'm really torn. That's an interesting question. <laughs> that is a very interesting question. So linguistically, who are they close with? Because I genuinely don't think I know. Internal politics of Canada would probably cause it to stick with English because it's part of the, the French-English thing. The arguments between French and English have been going on for so long that it's impossible for that argument to end. Huh? So by stubbornness, they would not adopt American as the official language. Okay, so we'd have a English-speaking province above the American-speaking country. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's basically just how stubbornness that they wouldn't do. But there's also the fact that calling American its own language is, is kind of just dumb. It is very dumb. But America is the biggest army and they can fight you if you disagree. Even if they wanted good relations with America, I don't think people would do something that dumb. The level to which it is dumb is just so high that strategic concerns would not trump that. I cannot imagine something that dumb happening. All you've got to do is put up a sign saying, we speak American here, or American accepted as a language, and then you're done. I'm just thinking that the level to which that sort of dumbness can occur is restricted only to the Balkans. <laughs> I'd say uh, another region of the world is China and its China problem, right? Like China says, hey, we all know Taiwan's a country. It has its own immigration, its own currency, its own laws, its own president, its own history, its own, but you don't get to call it a country. And the world says, hey, but we'd like to. And then China says, yoink. And then everyone goes, okay, we will not call it a country. So, I mean, calling something a country is significantly more important than calling a language a language. So, I'm just saying, there's precedent. The Taiwan thing is similar to the Kosovo thing, in that it's uh, not allowing unilateral secession. China doesn't allow any secession. Which is effectively saying that if a country doesn't want something to secede, you can never allow it to be legitimate, which is basically saying that secession is not possible if unilateral secession is not possible. But let's not get into that. Yeah, the, the debate on about unilateral secession is when we could go on forever about like what it means and whether it's good. Because the, the US is a country that seceded internationally. The things that are dumb in the Balkans that they tend to be is the fact that there's the same language that, has, that is written three different times. And there's also the Northern Macedonia naming dispute. Oh God. With Greece. Yeah. I forgot about that. It's all over now. Which is <laughs> basically prevented Macedonia from joining the EU. EU and UN? NATO, sorry. Because Greece would never allow it until that was resolved. That was the dumbest period in European history. That was so dumb. You're right, you know, the Balkans is just <laughs> everything about it. Like, you're just like, come on, guys. This is, there are real issues here. Like, and that's the one. Yeah, so. Do, do you know that, in spite, they renamed their airport, like, Alexander the Great Airport? Like, no, we're definitely Macedonia. Do you hear about that? Like, it's, they've renamed it again now. I, I do know about that. It's just, they've renamed it back to just Skopje International now. It's not called Alexander the Great anymore. It was one of the peace settlements they offered. I kind of like it. it. It was just so petty, but I liked it. 
<laughs> I love how petty major countries can be. It reminds you that all this diplomacy, on some level, is down to the same, you know, it runs on the same rules as even the most basic societal stuff. It's fun, it's fun. Anyway, um, so to tie this all into Europe, will the European Union be balkanized, or does Brexit? Because I think the one thing that, like, the reason that EU doesn't need to hurt the UK is because Brexit looks like such a mess on the surface that no country wants to go through the... Again, it's it's dumb that this is a factor, but I think no, no country wants to go through the embarrassment that Brexit has appeared to be, or has been, you could just say. Like, Brexit was a legitimate embarrassment, right? The fact that Brexit was an embarrassment might actually make it so that when it turns out in reality, the EU will not have to, like, punish the UK. That's what I'm... Uh, yeah, exactly. Because the embarrassment... I think the embarrassment alone is enough of a, dis a deterrent, you're right? No one wants to have their country go through that. Yeah, the embarrassment is deterrent enough. So it'll probably get a better deal that way because it doesn't need to be made an example of. Yeah. Task failed successfully. But I, I do feel like the embarrassment, again, for any country that wasn't France, Germany, the UK, again, it comes full circle. That embarrassment could be enough to genuinely... Because most people, if, if Hungary decided to leave, uh, which would be a, probably a bad idea given their location, but if Hungary decided to leave the EU, Hungexit, Hunksit, Magyarskit, um, but if, if they decide to leave, then the whole world would just hear like, oh, they're that nationalistic minded and like, oh God, they're, uh, what embarrassment, etc. And it actually might hurt them significantly. I don't know if it's planned on any level or if it's just a really happy coincidence, but I feel like that is genuinely what's going to keep the EU together for a while. Because especially now the migrant crisis is gone, there's no factors pulling the EU apart right now. And yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to, to bow this, I'd say. I think we both agree that the EU isn't falling apart and therefore right now, uh, maybe one day in the future. Although actually, do you think the EU is sustainable as a long-term organization? That is an interesting question. Right? No one knows for sure. Again, we have to clarify this for everything. Like, when it comes to breaking new ground and the nature of international bodies, no one can say for sure. But, you think? Well, the EU seems to be moving towards becoming ever more integrated. Ever closer union. Which was one of the reasons why the UK left. Because they didn't like that. They liked the EU as a block that was just an economic union and not trying to... We just wanted to be friends, you know? We weren't, we weren't in it for such a serious relationship. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you're you're in for a more casual fling. <laughs> yeah, right. Like we just got out of a big breakup with the with the Commonwealth boys, and we just wanna, you know, we just want something casual. You know, we want some trade benefits, but we don't want all this political nonsense. We don't want to move in yet. We're we're still independent. You know, we gotta keep that going. Without the UK, it could probably move in that direction more. But there's the question of if a strongly connected Europe, rather than a loosely connected Europe, is even possible. Not in the short term. Because it's not only a question of will. It's a question of if that's a functioning thing well it's definitely not in the short term but as kids are born you know like this is a thing in any country like with the current people of course it's not within most of those current people's lifespan of course it's not in the next 30 years no but as more and more people are born into a europe a europe which funnily enough is united by the fact that it's not brexiting and it's not going through that as people feel more european and interact with euros and european bodies more they might start to accept that it's basically a country already and therefore be more likely to vote for the things that bring it closer and closer that's my personal theory